Hello and welcome to a white glove edition of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brent Mosier and Travis Santana, and today we'll be reviewing the Grand Budapest Hotel. But before we get into the review, let's go ahead and see what uh, me and Travis got onto in the shop this week. I like the banner. I think it really brings attention to the shop. Mm, yeah, it does. I must say, I thought your chosen color palette might be a bit much, but it really is quite lovely. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's charming. It's inviting. But professional enough where we don't appear like a bunch of candy asses. Right, right. The customers will be shaking like shitting dogs when they see this banner. Wait, what? Is that good? <laughs> Never mind, dear boy. Let's review the Grand Budapest Hotel. M. Gustav, a world-class concierge, and his trusted lobby boy Zero must escape the pursuit of a fascist heir. As events unfold, the two must secure a priceless painting, navigate a country teetering towards war, escape prison, leverage a secret society, and prove M. Gustav's innocence with the reward of horrors and whiskey should they succeed. Are there still faint glimmers of civilization left on this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity, or is all lost for our intrepid heroes? Find out in our review of Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel. Travis, you want to go ahead and give me your quick diagnostic of the Grand Budapest Hotel? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, it's funny. I know you have talked about it in previous podcasts. You don't like to do a whole lot of research before going into a movie. Uh, like you might watch a trailer and that's about it. Uh, I did not even do that with this movie. So I, for once, kind of came in blind like you. Um, I've seen plenty of Wes Anderson, so I kind of knew what to expect. Mm -hmm. um, and... When I say what to expect, that's not always a good thing for me. At times, I think he can be a little pretentious and <laughs> just uh, a, little. a little bit tiresome to watch. <laughs> but in in this particular case, I feel like that was dialed down enough um, where I really enjoyed it. It um, Even though it has that level of Wes Anderson ridiculousness, um, I was quite happy that it was a kind of a small focus as far as characters. Usually you think of these giant ensembles and there are a lot of stars in this movie, but it's really a two person film. And I kind of enjoyed that dynamic. It was unexpected for me. Mm. What about you? Uh, absolutely. It's one of those Wes Anderson movies or one of those where it's almost like a where's Waldo of cameos because he has his core group of like 20 people he loves working with. In fact, if I'm completely honest, it wasn't until I was doing research for the film that I realized that, uh, Madam D was Tilda Swinton. Um, and then I was like, oh shit, I guess that was her. I was like, I, I, I did not, I was like, I didn't remember seeing her in the film. And then I'm like, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, he, uh, to me, I'm a, a, a huge fan of Wes Anderson, not to say that there aren't movies of his that I'm just kind of like, eh, you know, a little pretentious. He's somebody I'm always excited when he has a movie come out, even if after I watch it, I'm like, mm, not my favorite Wes Anderson movie. This, though, with the exception of Rushmore and Life Aquatic, 
this might be peak Wes Anderson for me. I mean, it's going to be those top three. And, you know, depending on probably my mood, it varies as to which one I love the most. But I legitimately love this movie. I love the dialogue. Um, I love just the choreography. I love the the colors, um, even just thematically. Like, there's so much of this movie that... And it, it might... I never really thought about it, that it is... He hones in on two characters, and it really is just about their bond. And basically, from being, you know a trusted employee to a friend to, you know, uh, towards the end when they refer to each other as brothers, like it's watching that relationship bloom. I think I definitely find myself attracted to as well. Um, but just overall, I, I legitimately love this movie. Yeah, it, it just I, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen the Royal Tenenbaums and, and Life Aquatic. I would say one of those two would probably be my favorite going into this movie. But I don't remember those movies uh, displaying as much heart as this movie. Um, and I think maybe that's a byproduct of like Royal Tenenbaums. There's really, you know, six to eight main characters where in this is the, the economy of story allows a, a lot more fleshing out of these two. But the heart was a nice counterbalance because without the heart, it, it can become a, a little bit too much of a film school experience watching Wes Anderson. Mm -hmm. So the heart was a, was a perfect seasoning on this movie. And I think it, it on initial view, it, it might be my favorite as well. Um, it's, it's going to be a weird analogy to put here. I, I also love, you know, music a lot. I get into a lot of punk and garage rock and stuff like that. And, uh, the best analogy I can do with this movie to me is, uh, to bring it back to a band, modest mouse, um, where their album, good news for people who love bad news, kind of became like their one like big rate like their first radio or like commercial success and to me that album was the perfect balance of modest mouse being kind of this garage band from washington and then being kind of commercialized where it's like it was this perfect like that venn diagram that middle piece where i'm like this is perfection to me and like, it's not to say that i don't love stuff that they've come out since then and I don't cherish the stuff that they did before that. But to me, that album was kind of when they found the perfect balance. And to me, that is very much what the Grand Budapest Hotel is for me for Wes Anderson. It is the perfect balance of his quirky art house-ness and it kind of just being like an actual, like really good, like I don't want to say popcorn movie, but just like theatrical movie where like you don't have to be kind of a fucking weirdo to enjoy it. Like it's just, it is very charming. It is some, it's very approachable to me um in many ways and like i said i just again ultimately I, I think it is just an absolutely fantastic movie um you know i just down even to, from the beginning like typically i hate movies with where there's a narrator um but i think jude law's the narrator as the younger version of the author like his narration is almost a character of itself beyond him being a physical character. Like there is the character of Jude Law as the young author, and then there is the character of his voiceover. And like somehow there's a separation where you still know it's the same person, but like the way that Jude Law delivers the dialogue. And it is just, I think a lot of times I think that voiceover is lazy, like a narrator is lazy, but like the dialogue is, is so fun to listen to. Like you could almost just listen to Jude Law narrate the entire movie. Like if it was a radio show or something like that, because it is just, it is, it's exciting to hear it, you know? And, and I'm glad that you mentioned the dialogue because that's far and away my favorite thing about this movie. And uh, the dialogue made me think of another uh, creative that is kind of famous for dialogue. And I thought of Aaron Sorkin. Are you familiar with Aaron Sorkin at all? Uh, not by name. Uh, he wrote The West Wing. He wrote The Social Network. Um, OK. Yep. A Few Good Men. Yeah. So 
much like Wes Anderson, when he's working at its best, the dialogue is always stuff that you it's a little bit elevated. It's a little bit perfect. Like you wouldn't necessarily run into people that could speak this eloquently and always have the perfect word choice all the time. But when it works, it really sings to you and it just feels a little bit above realism. And I think when Wes Anderson goes bad, the same with Sorkin, the dialogue kind of sticks out and it never feels real. Whereas this movie, it just it just sings from start to finish. I mean, some of the dialogue, it, it just feels like only one person could have written it, and that's Wes Anderson, and only one person could have delivered it as perfectly, and that's Ray Fiennes in this movie. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you want to get into individual quotes, but I, I jotted down a few. There's so many. There's so many. <laughs> I mean, when you're introduced to his character, it's him bringing in, like, basically preparing the room for Madame D. And when she gets in there and he... <laughs> He's talking about her fingernails, and he's just—he's this poetic person. He's talking to us. What? What's, what? What is wrong with your hands? I'm physically repulsed. <laughs> like, what is wrong with your? It's like it's like it's, you're caught so off guard. But like, just yes, his lines and just his character period is just fantastic to watch on screen because it is a man of just pure passion. Like he is—I love he can stay so refined, and then there is the things that just sets him off, and he almost he breaks character but remains in character. If that makes sense, where it's like this is exactly how you would expect him to be, but he's now he's he's a little less of a sophisticate. He's just <laughs> like the train when he starts to go off on the poem about you know uh, uh what is it he wants to talk about society because oh fuck it <laughs> just like he's <laughs> just over it he's not even gonna try yeah and uh, the exchange he has i believe with zero uh, i just started it at uh she was dynamite in the sack by the way and then zero's <laughs> like she was 84 and he just quickly with no shame no sort of inflection one right there he's just like i've had older and then he goes into this hilarious speech about when you're young it's all fillet steak but as the years go by you have to uh move on to the cheaper cuts and and here's to your point where he kind of breaks character a little bit and shows you that he's not quite as refined as he likes to put on because he says you have to go to the cheaper cuts which is fine with him because he likes those (laughs) So he's kind of just admitting, like, through all of my errors, I still am a very simple man at my core. Mm-hmm. Well, um, he, and then late. Oh, no, what was that? You go ahead. Uh, I was to say, and then just later on, when uh, somebody insults him about sleeping with a lot of people, and he says he goes to bed with all of his friends. <laughs> he is just so honestly himself. I I love in the prison when the one of his prison friends accuses him of being real straight. He goes, "Well, I've never had that compliment before." <laughs> it's just like there's so many like just almost not quite under the radar, but like again, they're just very subtle comments about the whole thing. Um, just his character in general, I think, is a fantastic character because, and I assume this is my choice. Like he is a man dedicated to his craft more than anything else. Like he takes such pride in being a world-class concierge. Cause even when he leaves, you know, uh, there's, there's a death in the movie. Well, I guess we talk about spoilers. It doesn't really matter. So Madam D is, is dies. It's revealed that she's murdered. But even when he goes to basically go to her, you know, her side because she's dead and are, you know, to, to find out what happened, he remains in the grand Budapest concierge 
like outfit he never leaves that like that is his identity is being this master concierge um and i just love even when he's in the prison he continues to serve it's just it's one of those things like to his core that is who he is and i just appreciate that level of dedication you know yeah and you know what even he's he's full-on customer service mode at all times even when um what's what's his old mistress that died what was her name madam d Madam D, even when Madam D's dead, he's complimenting her nails. Uh, he talks about, you know, whatever cream they have down at the morgue, he wants some. Mm-hmm. Like, even to a dead body, he is still filling that role of world-class concierge. Um, and he even had a line of dialogue that I loved. I think it might have been uh, after the first interaction with the Nazis, where he's just talking about – uh, sometimes people are rude because they're just afraid that they're not going to get good service. Do you recall that mm-hmm. line? Yeah. Like rudeness is merely an expression of fear. People fear that they won't get what they want. The most dreadful and unattractive person only needs to be loved and they will open up like a flower. So it's like, I don't know if you had this with Ray Fine's character, but the first probably 45 minutes of the movie, I'm trying to decide where he is supposed to be on the scumbag scale. And at the end of the movie, I don't think he's one at all. He's just, oh, again, he's just a hundred percent him, but he treats people well. Right. Yeah. I don't, like, there was a time where I thought maybe he was actually, uh, maybe he did plot to kill Madam D. I, I thought that was up in the air for a moment. I don't know if that was intentional or if I just missed it, but for a second, did you think he might've been the con man? Everybody thought he was. No, no, I think even from the beginning, I thought, you know, if you want to call him scummy, it's just because, you know, he basically would would sleep with married women. I thought it was always like, you know, before they even defined it, you know, towards the end of the movie where he, you know, they had to be blonde and, you know, they had uh, all the all the traits of the women or I guess in some cases men that he, you know, pursued. I thought that was always just a reflection of himself. Um, and you know, to me, the the best case of, and I guess why they set it up, why I didn't think he was a bad person, is the first interaction with the the police, the military police on the train. Ed Norton's character, and Ed Norton basically says like, "Oh, you, you know, you you understand? He helped a, a very lonely boy, you know." I just like true. That it was one true. of those things where, like, at first, you know, you're like, "Oh, is he gonna wind up being it? Like, he's not, you know, he's he's too young to be his father. Like, you know, uh, Gustav is too young to be his father, so it's not supposed to be like that's gonna be his illegitimate child. But like, the fact that they establish, like, no, you don't understand. Like, he took care of me at a time when like I was very lonely and like my parents were off doing things. I'm like, I thought that they, you know, that was one of those things where they are establishing him, regardless of him being a selfish person. He is also at the same time, you know, he's his identity is to serve, you know, even if it's to serve himself, it is to serve. True. I, for, I forgot about the Edward Norton dropped line that kind of, yeah, shows that he, he's he got a good heart. And it's it, by the end of the movie, like I said, that's established. But I guess the, the breadcrumbs are there early enough. Um, obviously, I think Ray finds and the dialogue was the highlight. Um, any other of the performances stand out to you? Uh, I mean, just in terms of performances, I. It's one of those things. It's to say to stand out. I mean, everybody was their Wes Anderson version. I thought was it Adrian Brody. He plays uh, was it Dimitri? The son of yeah, 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 the the heir. I thought it was interesting that 
you know, they definitely reserve the harshest language for the fascists. And I thought that that fit very well. Like when he screams, you faggot, I'm like, what? Like my first reaction yeah. is like, damn, this is 2014. Would they do this today? I'm like, no, because it's very appropriate for like he's supposed to be a terrible person, a terrible character. So like that kind of language is necessary for him for him to be that, you know, aggressive for no apparent reason. Um, in terms of performances, uh, I mean, I loved Willem Dafoe. He didn't have very many lines, but he's just, he's such a great character actor and he's just such a fucking weirdo in this movie. Like, and there's so many scenes where like, it's crazy how much is revealed about like just him and his character off of just his hands. Like how often it's just him playing with the skull rings or like the times he would take the phone call from Dimitri. And it's like, you're just seeing his hands on the desk and all of the tools around them. Like it just, and that goes back. I mean, Wes Anderson is an absolute master to me of using all of the, the, the frame like just maximizing the impact of a frame. And I think one of the greatest examples of that is the scene where they've been picked up by Bill Murray, whatever, you know, he's a, he's another concierge. He's part of the secret or the, the crossed key society and they're dropping them off at the train. And the, the shot is just, it's, it's broken up so beautifully to me because the bottom half of the, the screen is a tunnel. And the vehicle that they're riding in is in the background and drives into the foreground. And then the top half of the screen is broken up to a train enters from the right hand of the screen. And the car they're riding in enters in from the left hand of the screen. And they get off and get off onto the train. And I'm like, the fact that they broke the scene up that well, where it's like it didn't need all of these transitions. And there's so much of that in this movie. And I guess that's where it goes back to that whole balance of this is the perfect like balance of Wes Anderson doing kind of like that whimsical, almost like toys, you know, toy settings that he does in his transitions to him kind of going all the way where he did like Isle of Dogs, where it's all stop motion. And it's it's basically all that style. And um, I said, I just Again, he he sets up so many of the scenes. Just there's so much to unpack, and they're just again beautifully shot. I just I like I say, it just it's it. I mean, he's an art house guy, so I guess it's what you come to expect. But it just like I said, it is always just amazing watching this movie to me to to just absorb it. Yeah, and and to kind of touch on two things you mentioned, the kind of whimsical toy-like setting that is often synonymous with his movies, it's it's very much present here, Um, but – as a counterbalance, like you were mentioning the the hateful language used by Adrian Brody's character, I like the movie a couple of times sprinkles in that real harsh dose of reality, even if it's just a line by a character that kind of snaps you out of that dreamlike world. I think he did it enough where even if it's a heightened Wes Anderson reality, it still felt like reality. And he loses mm-hmm. me when you when you go completely away from reality. But like you said, this movie just walks that tightrope perfectly uh, to balance those two things. Yeah, and I think even just the, the imagery of the movie is fantastic because, you know, you're going essentially backwards in time and, like, you do two jumps. So you start... I assume I think they have, there's a title card. I assume it's supposed to be in like the 80s or something like that because you you start in what is you know the modern time for the 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 thing and everything the architecture is drab. Everything is gray and white. Um, there's very little color. The movie basically starts off and it is it looks a lot like you know um, 80s Berlin. You know right around the time that Berlin Wall comes down. 
you have a, a punk. He's really the only color in the scene. And then you have this girl that walks up with a, a bright pink book. Again, pretty much all of the, the, the tones and colors of the scene are, are grays and whites and, and blacks and stuff like that. Maybe some, some khakis and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's very muted. Um, you can tell, I think, I don't remember if she has a plaid shirt, but she has some kind of colored shirt where you tell she's kind of a punk too. And she has the buttons on her collar where, again, it's just these little splashes of color and then the book. And then the next time you go back, it is essentially the author at his older age um, recounting the story of, you know, him getting ready to talk about the story of him being told the story. And that's kind of those colors are even too a little bit more muted. But, you know, it's that transition between how bright and vibrant everything was and what was essentially the, the 30s and 40s. Um, and then that's when you take the it all the way back to where the majority of the movie takes place, which is in, you know, it's essentially between world war one and world war two. And just everything is very bright and vibrant and colorful. Um, and to me, I don't even know if that's supposed to be like a motif of just the, the, you know, outcome and the longer lasting effects of war where essentially you had all of this beautiful color and architecture and these characters. And then as you went forward in time, you just lost more and more of that. And even then to the point where I thought it was interesting when the author is talking in the 70s, you know, he yells at the kid not to, to shoot him with the gun, which I thought was hysterical. It was a great break and all that. Yes, yes. But when the kid comes back and apologizes, the kid is holding the gun to the camera the whole time. And I'm like, this, you knowing Wes Anderson, that's intentional. It's like the kid is holding you hostage, essentially. And then you 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 go back. Um, and again, he's playing with a toy gun. He's a child playing with a toy gun. So it's just, again, is it this... Is there a little these little touches and yeah of you know like just again the prolonged effects of of what war has done? Yeah, interesting. I don't. I don't. I definitely got the the change in color palette and basically the future is a lot worse than the past. I didn't know you know how much of that was you know the war or just uh, just the rise of fascism in general. Mm. Uh, because I did so little research on this movie, I, I forgot that it was 2014, but it, it feels like maybe it was a couple of years a, ahead of the curve. Um, I guess maybe Wes Anderson just kind of had a feel for the zeitgeist of what was going on. But uh, it felt extremely topical to be a movie that's, you know, basically seven years old at this point. Mm hmm. Um, but yeah, again, just uh, I, I can't stress enough. Just I it's one of those movies you can tell how much i enjoyed a movie because of how little notes i actually took on it because i'm just so kind of enthralled with it and usually a lot of the notes just it's the same thing like the transitions in the movie are fantastic um you know i love the one where he's at the giant door trying to get into the zeros at the giant door trying to get into the prison and then it teeters off to the side and there's the little door and it's just like the whole time like why would they open the big door <laughs> i did i tried to do a little bit of research to figure this out because i feel like it can't be coincidence again because it's a Wes Anderson film, but like there's a lot of numbers in this movie and I couldn't tell if like there's anything if you were to go back and arrange the movie in like scenes by the numbers because like there's zero and then it's the prison is like number 19 and I think Mendel's the the or the the sweet shop I think is like number 14 thing it has like number 14 on the box and I'm just like is there one of these weird things where like there's a specific reason why all of these things have numbers and if you were to put it in order is there any significance to it but I couldn't find anybody else who had looked into it or done anything 
uh, one way or the other, proven that there was or was not. So it might be something if I ever get bored, I, I might go back and look. Um, but like I said, there's just a lot of of weird like numbers being brought out throughout the movie. Interesting. Um, yeah, I guess one last thing I wanted to mention, just a very specific scene, because uh, like you said, the way he composes a shot, Wes Anderson is is incredible, and you know he can do it to convey a lot of things. Uh, just a sillier scene, probably the laugh of the movie for me, is when the police show up to the hotel to question him about the murder. And he's standing there with Zero in the lobby with a bunch of cops. And it's a it's a shot of them in the foreground. And you see the hotel in the background all the way to like a rising staircase. And I wrote down the dialogue. Again, I can't – I'm not even going to try to mimic Ray Fiennes. But he's just like, you know what? I knew there was something fishy. We never got a cause of death. She's been murdered. And you think I did it. And then he just – waits a beat and then takes off running into the background <laughs> and zero and just the way it's blocked like there, you can tell what the, it was a meticulous way to set up the shot the way everybody's standing the way he runs off the way zero shuffles off to the left and the cops you know move to the right and then chase him out of the frame just the yeah. level of mastery just in a small scene like that like the scene would be funny no matter how it's shot but he knows the exact way to shoot it to amplify the comedy. And I mean, there's like a dozen examples of that. Yeah. I, I, other dialogue that I just think it's subtle that you'll miss. Like, I love the fact that when he gets the, the Mendel's chocolate, when um, Gustav gets it to the prison and he's sharing it with, you know, his, his prison buddies, um, he doesn't call it a knife. He calls it the throat cutter. He's like, <laughs> could you pass me the throat? Like, I love just, again, it's those subtle little things where I'm like, it means like it's, <laughs> It means so much to me that he called it the throat cutter. Like it made me, it made me laugh. That again, like there's the dedication to the dialogue. Um, what's it? I again when he, you know, when he fights Pinky, and he's like, again, you you referenced it in a thing like you can't have them thinking you're a candy ass in here. <laughs> it's just so matter of fact about everything. There's again, there's so many lines, and they're delivered so poetically throughout the the movie. Well, not only that, that, that scene is perfect comedically because it opens up with just him beat to a pulp and you don't exactly know why. And then he immediately tells Zero and thus tells the audience. But then the, the beautiful cherry on top is he ends it with, you know, oh, we're quite good friends now. Yeah. <laughs> and later on, he is quite good friends with him. Mm -hmm. Like he, he, he breaks out of prison with well, him. And if nothing else, I mean, it shows so much like, and I guess, you know, another thing I would say would be a theme of this movie, like just the doing acts of kindness how they they do wind up coming back in full because when they're going to leave the prison and the guy's trying to narc on them it's the the prisoner who um the mute guy with Gustav, the yeah scar. he's like he's like are you sure you don't want mush it needs a little bit of salt and like again trying to take care of people and that winds up coming back and helping them in the long run you know there's so much of the movie is it, it is about like helping one another and even just the cross keys in society as a whole it's basically it is a small group of people that, you know, they get stuff done like they can, you know, rely on one another to the point where, like, when you call on them, they stop whatever they're doing. Like there is a priority to that, that bond and that, you know, friendship between the concierge. Um, yeah, I just I think it. It, the the line that you know I, I put in in the intro I, I think it just it sums up so much of the movie to me that you know there is still a faint glimmer of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity 
like to me that so much sums up the movie and what the the movie's about is being that faint glimmer of you know it claims civilization but to me it is more about just kindness and like almost the collectivism you know just taking care of one another yeah and i think it it shines through constantly because i mean you know the the a couple of times that it refers to Ray Fiennes being, you know, a homosexual or bisexual or whatever, like there's there's absolutely no shame to it for for Ray Fiennes. Like he's he's proud to, you know, I, I know it's it's overblown and used too much, but live in his truth, mm-hmm. you know. And then he's constantly defending Zero, uh, you know, because Zero is basically being racially profiled, you know, mm-hmm. by a fascist regime. So he always believes in tolerance and and doing what's right but the movie doesn't really beat you over the head with that it's not one of those where oh here's a message it just shows the characters living that that's that's how they live their lives and so uh and obviously once you contrast that with the literal rise of the nazis you know well there you have it and i think it's one of those things where it 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 starts to mirror and um is it agatha what was the name of yeah, Agatha the, is his, is the yeah, love interest um, for for Zero when he's talking about why he's so like why he thinks she's so you know wonderful and why Zero is lucky to have her is that she's pure and I guess again that is another one of those reflections like she might be pure more in the moral sense um, but the reason I think that Gustave has such an affection for her is because he is pure in the sense that you've you've touched on it. He's just himself. Like, at no point does he ever try and hide that. Like, you know, he is at all times 100% who he is. Like, whether that is vain and shallow and superficial. Um, you know, at the same time, he is he is a concierge. And, like, that is his identity. So he is there to, to serve um, whoever it is. Um, I, again, it just goes into that whole idea of, of purity to me. Like, he is just... He's a pure character, not necessarily on the moral grounds, but definitely, and I'm just talking about that in the sense that all the infidelity that he participates sure. in, um, but just, he's pure in his, his character, um, as, as to who he is. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think Gustav is the definition of live and let live, you mm-hmm. know, do what you want to do. Um, you know, you may think it's, uh, you know, morally unsound of me to sleep with married women, but he comes at it at a place of, you know, he feels like he's doing these women a service. You know, like I said, he's got that line about, you know, even the most dreadful and unattractive people, they just need love. So like he's, that's what he does in life. Uh, he just literally spreads the love and and feel good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, then there's so many things where like, they just, they subtly nod at things too. Cause it's like. When he's first introduced to Zero and he's walking through about, like, you know, he says, like, You're the, the biggest thing you can do is, like, as a concierge, you will take whatever you know to the grave. Like, it is a top secret. And as he's doing that, we've already established that many of the patrons come to the Grand Budapest Hotel to essentially romantically be with him. And as he's saying that, I'm 99% sure it says, like, prince something is on the door of the room he's about to go into implying that essentially the prince has a secret homosexual relationship mm. or bisexual relationship and that that is you know again gustav his service is to aid the prince with that and ultimately keep that as a secret you know yes yes i i love that it, it was very subtle but again that's the 
the movie demonstrates that over and over again. Uh, I, I think we always in, enjoy when characters are true to themselves across a narrative, and uh, Gustav absolutely is. Um, I don't know if you have any more positives. I, I We obviously loved the movie. Was there anything that was left lacking for you? Um, I don't think there's anything that was left lacking. I mean, again, I it's a movie I get to the end of, and it's... I enjoyed it from beginning to end. I do think it's disappointing. You know, you you want Mustafa to have a a happier ending than what he got. Um, you know, with the whole thing that Agatha died two years after they were married with his son. I was like, man, that's kind of like that's a bummer way to to you know to end that because again they've gone through so much and then you know it's nice that it had it off screen and all that. I did. Oh, I did want to bring this up. I did love, I, he only really does it once in the movie, but the whole switcheroo that he did with the whole thing where it sets up the whole thing with, you know, you think Agatha is being pursued by uh, Willem Dafoe's character. Was it Jopling? And then the next scene uh, is yeah. the police, and it's like, we found a young girl's head in a basket, and you're like, oh my god, like they killed her. Like To me, that was an emotional little thing. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I can't believe they they killed her. Like, I, that that's a, such a terrible. And here's the thing. I've seen the movie before. And it's one of those things like, I did not remember that this is how she died. Like, I can't believe this. I even got emotional the second time that I watched it. I'm like, what a fucking shitty, like, way for her to go. And then they pull out the sister's head. I'm like, oh, relieved. I'm like, then what the fuck happens to her? I can't rem- I don't remember her dying in this movie. The way that he, re- like, you know, the character refers to, like, it's so hard for him to talk about her and all that. And you yeah. know she's not around. And I'm like, it's like, you could have at least let them have a little bit of a life together. But at the end of the day, it's like, no, he winds up, like... At the end of the day, it's sad because Mustafa essentially gets all of the money, which never really meant anything to him, but he loses everything. He loses Gustav when, you know, ultimately the fascists kill him. He loses his wife and child. Um, So like I said, I I guess I I wish Mustafa had had a a little bit cheerier of of a story. But again, that's not a knock to the movie. That's just me personally, because I enjoyed his character. And I'm like, you you hate to see a character you love kind of get the shit into the stick you know yeah so i'm glad you brought that up um and this will kind of i don't know it may ruin my chop shop a little bit but i want to get into it because you know this movie reminded me of another movie that has come out i think of the last year or two did you ever see jojo rabbit yes i love jojo rabbit so I got maybe it's just the Nazis. Maybe that's the one to one here. Why I see the comparison, but so I love this movie. Don't get me wrong, but in this particular setting, I needed something with a little more dramatic impact because I'm thinking and spoilers for Jojo Rabbit. Anyone that hasn't seen it and wants to, I'm thinking of. Okay, if you're still listening, here it goes. Uh, The way they uh, foreshadow Scarlett Johansson's death in that movie by her shoes. Do you Mm. remember that? Yes. Like, I needed a scene of that power to be somewhere in this movie. Whether it be when the fascists kill Gustav, I don't need to, you know, you don't have to make it gratuitous where you see him get shot or something but i need it to be more than just uh yep we'll cut away and yeah they sure enough they killed him right there because the the ending when you say it out loud seems like such a downer but the movie i don't i don't know if it's intentional or if wes anderson just thought 
tonally it would be too much to counter his normal kind of bubbly art house style but i just don't think the the ending landed the way i thought it should have considering what actually happened and i just don't understand why he chose to do it that way yeah i i don't either it's it is an interesting art again d- direction wise it is basically and that's another one where they changed the palette because the that's the only moment I believe in the entire movie where it is black and white and it is just drab completely without color is when uh, Zero is recounting ha- basically how um, Gustav was was taken off and, and, and murdered or killed by the by the military. Yeah, I don't know. I just it was an interesting way to do it. And again, there was still like um, I think they just they used the the end of their gun to like hit Gustav in the face or not Gustav uh, zero, mm-hmm. and I'm like that was like a shocking bit of violence, and I'm like okay this is gonna be where kind of shit hits the fan, and technically it is. It just I don't know dramatically it, it didn't land for me, um, and that that's the only black mark I can put on the movie. Like if you're gonna have it be such a melancholy story, I need a little bit more sadness at the end because the movie's been delightful and and the message lands, you know, Gustav's a good guy, but I needed that for me to really, I know this will sound weird, but for me to really hate the Nazis in this movie, I needed to see a little bit more. I I know by default, if you put Nazis in a movie, there's enough cachet to hate them, but if I'm just an alien from another planet and I don't quite understand, I, the Nazi stuff doesn't land as much as it could. Well, it's so also the, say something like Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, it's almost to the point where the the ending feels almost kind of tacked on in the sense that, and I don't know if it's because it's supposed to be the recounting of the story of Zero through the author, but like, it's it's definitely one of those where like the ending happens where basically you know gustav winds up inheriting the entire fortune um he gets to live the lavish lifestyle that he has always you know basically been you know a part of adjacently or you know kind of he, he's got gotten to participate in through the lens of the grand budapest hotel but it's just yeah it just really quickly basically it ends with all the tragic like and maybe that's the whole point of it as i'm as i'm saying it is like if the focus isn't on the negativity, if, again, because it goes back to that quote about being, what is it, the faint glimmering of hope. You know, it's still faint glimmering of civilization. I, I can say hope or whatever left in this barbaric slaughterhouse. Like, the focus isn't on the bad. Like, because both of the things, the worst things that, that happened to Mustaf, he chooses not to talk about with the author. And the author is recounting basically the story as told through Mustaf's eyes. Because basically just in passing, is like, yep, my wife and child died by a disease that today can be treated in a week. And then, you know, my, my best friend and brother was essentially killed by Nazis. And it's just like, that's not something I want to focus on. I want to focus on this, you know, wonderful journey of us essentially become bonding and becoming brothers and getting the painting and all that. I, I don't know if that's kind of the whole thing is like, the point isn't to focus on that. And if you were to end the movie kind of on that note, like that's what you would be left with as opposed to like us, because we're over, you know, we're, we're trying to criticize the movie. Our focus now is like, well, you know, we're, we're trying to pick something we were unhappy about. And like, we just don't feel like we, they really focused on the negativity that, you know, that the worst part that much. And it's like, oh, maybe at, at the end of the day, that was, that was the point. That was the intent was that that wasn't supposed to be the focus, you know? And even to the point yeah, why very- adding it to the movie was to, to make that point. Like, that's not what you should be dwelling on. Like, yes, this happened, but 
that's not the point. Basically, the point is, you know, it's the friends we made along the way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, anybody who's listened to any of our podcasts, for the most part, I feel like every trilogy, there's at least one movie where we'll ask the question, you know, the director did this. Do you think it was a conscious choice? I, I, the one that comes to mind, like in King of Staten Island, you mentioned, you know, the black friend of Pete Davidson just disappears Uh in the back third of the movie and like, was that intentional? And at the time we were both kind of like, eh, no, nothing about Judd Apatow or the rest of this movie <laughs> indicates it's a conscious choice. Whereas what you just said, I would a hundred percent believe that's part of Wes Anderson's thought process. I know he doesn't really discuss his movies very often, which I do respect. Um, but I think you could easily draw that interpretation. It's, it's yep. life is full of tragedy. All you can really do is try to enjoy the time that you have. Mm -hmm. with the people that you love so yeah um even even the biggest complaint i would have you can easily explain that and and understand that that was a, a conscious choice by the director absolutely absolutely um so with that said i mean do you want to get into some little choppy chop let's do a little choppy chop uh we got we got some changes to the choppy chop uh maybe you want to get our our listeners on board Yep. So for you know, any of our new listeners or anybody who's, you know, we appreciate those who've been around for a little while. Um, we are we are changing up the format of Chop Shop a little bit. Um, so for the first several seasons or trilogies, whatever you'd like to call them, um, basically it was very free form. It was, you know, the idea was let's take a movie after we've watched it and we're going to quote unquote chop it up. And like it was either like how would we fix the movie if we thought it was terrible um, you know, or just make it into a different genre if we thought that was funny, kind of like what we did with the breakup. But ultimately, we wanted to to kind of give it a little bit more structure, um, and not only that, you know, allow us to kind of flex our creativity. Because let's face it, you know, it's, we're we're trying to do that with this as well. So what we decided was uh, at the before each movie, um, basically we have six categories, um, and what we will do is by by random choice. Um, I guess random choice is an oxymoron there, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. Randomly, we will be given one of the six genres that we have to essentially take the movie that we have just watched and we have to convert it into a different genre. Um, we've intentionally tried to keep them a little bit vague so that, you know, um, we can we can go in and, and kind of play with that. So um, and then in addition to that, you know, we will classify the movie and it can't you know, you can't try and chop something into something that already already is. So the six categories and, you know, uh, keep me straight here. Uh, Travis. <laughs> My, I, mean, I, don't, I don't think anybody's ever accused you of being that. Brad, <laughs> but okay. Um, we have basically a tentpole blockbuster, whatever you want to call it. Basically the safe bet by the studio. Um, it's a, you know, action movie these days. I guess a lot of it would be like a Marvel movie or something like that. It's what they they're going to put out there because they know they're going to make their millions off of millions of billions, whatever. Um, then you have your Oscar bait, which is what we would have classified the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is basically, you know, this is a movie where you either have a writer, a director, or a bunch of actors, you know, their whole intent of doing this movie is because they want to show how great they are and they're trying to win awards off of it. So 
that's essentially what we're calling kind of our Oscar bait. You know, you, you could put art house into that uh, as a subcategory type thing. Um, then we have family friendly. Um, you know, that that could be animated, you know, Disney fi it, whatever you want to call it. Family friendly. Uh, horror, which, again, there's a ton of different types of horror. Uh, comedy. And then there was a sixth one that I am not recalling. Do you remember what it was? What? Oh, miniseries. See, that's, yeah. And then the last one is uh, actually a really interesting one. Um, it's miniseries. So if you were to take a movie and you were to chop it up and you were to make it into a miniseries like you would find on HBO or Showtime or something like that, how exactly would you divide this up? What would you focus on? How would you build up the other characters are again? However you would want to do it, but basically how would you build this into a, you know, a, a miniseries? Um, and that goes more into just you know, analyzing how a lot of media and you could even say cinema is being consumed today. It's less about, you know, these one-off stories, you know, 90 minutes long or whatever, like it used to be. And it's about expanding these and making these into, into much longer stories and stuff like that. So, um, long winded explanation there. Ultimately what happened is, you know, we know what the next movie is at the end of every episode. We'll say, we'll do the random generator, find out what we're doing to kind of tease for next week. But for this week, we had to kind of do it off screen. Um, so Travis received family friendly as his chop shop prompt and I received horror. So ultimately what's going to happen is Travis has, is going to have to turn the grand Budapest hotel into a family friendly movie. And I will follow up with turning it into a horror movie. Um, so with that, Travis, I'd love to hear your family friendly pitch of the grand Budapest hotel. So, in, in true Travis fashion, um, I'm going to be a crippling disappointment this week. And, and I don't want you or the audience to worry that it's a sign of things to come. The issue I ran into is probably 20 to 30 minutes into this movie, I knew exactly what I would do if I was going to make this a family-friendly movie, mm-hmm. or at least more family-friendly. Unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that movie was called Jojo Rabbit. Um, <laughs> basically, like having a child's imagination be set in the backdrop of you know World War II or the lead-up to World War II, um, that was going to be my idea, just kind of play with um, – you know, through the, you know, you would keep uh, Gustav and Zero in the movie. I would just, in my chop shop, I would have some sort of little kid living at the hotel. He's got some sort of, you know, quirky Wes Anderson style parent who, for whatever reason, has to work out of the hotel some months a year. And the kid's kind of left to his own devices in the hotel. So you would say you would put Hinkles in. Instead of instead of Edward Norton's character Hinkles, the the military police guy, instead of him being younger, um, you know, yeah, basically like it could be what his origin story was that I guess is off camera and only referenced in one line of dialogue. Basically, yeah, what did his childhood look like? Because I'm assuming what I'm describing would kind of be that's one way to interpret it. Like he was just a a latchkey kid with parents that either didn't watch him at all or weren't around. And he just kind of spent time at the hotel mm-hmm. and it would kind of just be, and I mean, I, I feel like a child of a certain age is always going to have that fantasy. I don't know if you ever had that. Like when I watched home alone Two: lost in New York, I was like, Oh my God, I would love to be a kid staying in a massive hotel like this. <laughs> well, um, yeah, of course, because he got all that yeah. room service. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I, I think that's the kind of movie I would make here. And, and you could throw in, um, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, talking mouse that lives in the wall or something if you want to go super child oriented. Uh, but, yeah, basically Home Alone 2, uh, Shades of the Never Ending Story, because uh, that you could also have the kid's story be about tolerance, too, because ultimately there would be some little Nazi bullies that he has to hide from and escape off to his fantasy world. So um, I know you're good at kind of chopping my choppy. Is there anything uh, jump off wise that, that you could do with that story? Well, I'm even just thinking like to bring Mendel's in the the confectionery place. Like I could almost see like instead of it being, you know, a, uh, a mouse or something like that, it's maybe like a, a gingerbread man or like some kind of cookie or something like that. Where <laughs> yes. like it's one of those where, you know, to have your cake and eat it too. Like it becomes kind of this best friend for him, you know, when uh, when Zero and Gustav aren't around. But at a certain point, like he's so tempted and wants to eat the cookie, but he has to resist. And like maybe throughout the movie to deal with his temptation like maybe he eats an arm or a leg or something like that like the the guilt that he has to deal with and then again that's kind of gustav and and zero that's their them essentially bringing them into their brotherhood and allowing him to you know you don't have to feel guilty about that or anything like that like allowing that to be his his glimmer of of hope or civilization is the fact that he you know he can indulge and enjoy this cookie despite the fact that his parents aren't around and stuff like that so um, and then, you know, again, the, the guilt of it is like the 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 it comes to life. And again, it has to, I guess, kind of maybe forgive him. Like, no, my role is a cookie. You should eat me like you shouldn't feel guilty about this or something like that. And then he allow, it allows him to to kind of actually build true relationships. Yeah. And I just like because, uh, I mean, Gustav and Zero's relationship is kind of an older brother, younger brother. Uh, but it would be interesting to throw in a, a third dynamic, which is that of like Gustav being a, a surrogate father. Um, and because, I mean, Gustav has got a very specific view of the world and to watch him impart that on zero is one of the joys of the movie. And I can only imagine that. But now you're explaining it to a child who is seeing everything for the first time. So it would just really open up uh, even more comedy uh, opportunities. So. Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll do better in the future. It just so happens that in this particular case, you know, Jojo Rabbit exists. So did you have any better luck with the uh, horror genre? Uh, I did. I did. So I went with what I believe, I'm pretty sure, is, is kind of a gothic horror take. Um, so I would keep the movie the same with the with the author. You know, we can start with the the girl with the, the pink book that comes up to the author's key and all that. And it's, you know, maybe this story um that, that she's looking at maybe the 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 cover is still pink but it's a little bit maybe there's a darkness to it. it almost looks a little a little tattered a little worn it's not as pristine and then we go back and the the author starts off and it's it's a little bit more maybe not treacherous but a little bit more like uh you know get ready for the story i'm about to tell you you know it's it's full of of mystery and intrigue and you know it's a little bit more twilight zone you know mm-hmm. um so we start off with zero coming into employment at the grand budapest hotel and he makes a, a comment about how uh are you, it starts off the same way we now go back in time we have the young author talking to mustaf all right and basically i like a lot of those dynamics and then they're gonna have dinner together right very similar lighting and stuff like that maybe the setting is again a little bit more worn down than what it is now 
um, just again to show that that the the hotel's been been through some time, you know. Um, I think most of what they relied on in this movie was a lot of just color, and I think that we could even put a little bit more dirt and grime into it, um, despite the fact that Mustafa would want it to be, you know, pristine. So uh, we now go back to the the 30s and 40s where our real story starts off, and Zero has now been, you know, employed, and he makes some comment about how, you know, M. Gustav seems he's, he's otherworldly, you know. There's just something about him, and an aura about him that just... He doesn't quite seem like he fits in this world, right? And that'll, that'll come back. And, and Zero, he starts as a lobby boy. And he begins to realize that, that many of the guests never really seem to leave, you know? Um, they're, they're people, you know, Mr. Gustav has said that they come there for him. And, you know, it, it's, it's a way for them to escape time, you know, as, as it, it continues to move on without them and stuff like that. Just, but Zero just, he seems like they never go back. These, these rich people, they never, they never go back to their countries. They never go back to their families. So at this time, he begins to, to, to start a relationship with, with Agatha, you know, the, the girl at the, the confectionery shop. And he starts to, he sees a newspaper clipping about a, a missing, missing Richie Rich, a, a, a missing royal, you know. And he realizes that this person that they're not missing. It says that they're deceased, but he realizes that they're they're living at the hotel, right? So he he goes to impart this knowledge to to Gustav. Like, listen, people think that this person's dead. We should notify the authorities. And Mister Gustav is he's very much against this. He does not think this is a good idea. He tells Zero he should not meddle in things in the town and that he should remain at the hotel unless he's told to go and retrieve something, right? And Zero doesn't this doesn't sit well with him, right? Why is, why is he being told not to look into this? He's been told that he's supposed to serve these people, and now he's being, you know, he, he's being told that he should ignore certain things? Very strange, indeed. So, it seems very nefarious at first. Zero attempts to stop Gustav, you know? Um, and then then he realizes that, that Gustav, he thinks that Gustav might be, might be behind some of these disappearances, you know? And, and maybe he's, he's keeping them trapped at this hotel. And after a while, he starts to realize that these people are actually ghosts. All right, they oh, they did die, but they died in the hotel. And Gustav has been trapping their souls in the hotel. And at first, this becomes it, it again looks very nefarious. Zero attempts to stop Gustav. He walks in as you know Gustav is trapping Madame D's spirit in her her suite in very Hotel California. Um, you know, but uh, he he realizes after after having a conversation with Gustav, the Gustav is actually doing these people a service because, as I said before, they they're having a hard time as time move, is moving on beyond them. Right? They're having a hard time adapting to the the future as it continues to evolve. You know, uh, whether it's becoming fascist Germany or you know maybe it's just the the way that the social status is changing. So they come, and it's actually a service that they come, and they're able to stay in this hotel as they are, in the world as they remember it, right? And time can move on without them. And then you find out that Gustav has actually been basically, I don't know if I want to say cursed, but he's been bound to the property, and his job is essentially to kind of help these these lost souls to where they can eventually move on. Because if not, all the rooms would always be occupied. You have to be able to get them out at a certain point. So this is when the movie kind of tips and you realize it's not as like, oh my God, terrifying, right? Um, so 
you know, Gustav has been bound to the property, um, but because of his, his, his loneliness, you know, and again, his willingness to help people, he's willing to trap these spirits here to help them be able to move on. Um, and again, this references to being beyond his time. So, you know, we, we come back to the 70s and you have Gustav talking to Mustafa and he mentions something about like he's never seen Gustav. I'm sorry, the, the author is now talking about Gustav. Like, I've, I've never seen Gustav walking the halls or like, you know, what's going on? Um, you know, maybe this is the point where Mustafa says something about, you know, Gustav was always beyond his time, you know. Um, and, you know, maybe make some comment about, like, you know, uh, at a certain point, you know, everybody has to kind of, you know, move on with their time. You know, um, I had, a, I, had a, I think, a, a decent quote here. I had, I had there. It's been, um, oh, but yeah, uh, Mustafa essentially says that the hotel has been placed in his care and that sooner or later, everyone must let go of the past. And then basically the elevator doors close. And that is when the author realizes that essentially Zero or Mustafa has released Gustav to be able to move on. And Mustafa has taken over, caretaker of the hotel. And like Gustav is actually much older than he seems. And then that's basically the end of the movie. It's so kind of like a gothic horror ghost tale. And it's, so it's kind of one of those where the first half of the movie we think – Gustav's motivations are, are nefarious slash evil. Mm, and it's yes. slowly revealed that he's actually doing a good thing for people in the afterlife. Yes, exactly. So almost taking what you were saying about like, did he actually kill Madame D? Like I actually did incorporate that into my chop shop, but uh, ultimately like it winds up being that yes, he kind of is killing them, but it is like a mercy death. And essentially it is allowing them to be able to come to terms in the time that they need, and then he helps basically usher them on to the next plane. And then at a certain point, you know, Gustav has been doing this for so long that as a as a gesture of kindness, Mustaf takes the responsibility off of Gustav and allows him to move on to the next plane. So now Mustaf, and maybe that's the reason, maybe his wife and child did die because the curse isn't, you know, whatever it is, isn't, multiple people can't occupy the curse so you know we can bring back in the kind of that sadness of you know like mustaf essentially is uh is alone but that is because at a certain point he's had to watch them watch them go on while he is remained you know at that kind of middle age where he ages slower and stuff like that but again i think it still comes back to that whole glimmering sense of hope you know at a certain point like they they're offering a a service to people who you know, essentially are, are having a hard time coping with the reality of the world changing around them and giving them the opportunity to come to terms with that before they they die, you know? I really like that. It, it keeps the, the theme and it keeps Gustav true to who he is. Now, my here's let me recommend just a little bit of tweak because what you were what you're saying sounds a oh, little bit it. familiar. <laughs> <laughs> What if, okay, instead of a hotel, we make it an island and people are on a plane <laughs> and they crash on this island, okay, and then Gustav has to help them let go. Maybe we could end it. The final shot could be in a church of no specific religion. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think? I like maybe that. Maybe we, if we open the movie with like maybe Gustav's eyes opening, 
because he's gonna like he's starting his day and then we can end the movie with like Mustaf saying hey it's still it's time you can go and it'll just be Gustav's eyes closing that's how we'll so we'll end it with an eye opening and we'll close it with an eye closing is that is that what you're thinking I like it let's let's drag it out and make it last six years though oh Oh, so we're making a miniseries out of this. I thought. There you, there okay, you go. Okay. okay. Yeah, you know, yeah, I guess a horror miniseries. We'll, horror. we'll tweak the rules here. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, I love it. I love it. Uh, hotel and ghosts. You, you had me. You had me with those two things. Uh, so, yeah, that's that was kind of my idea for for the choppy chop, because I, I like the setting and keeping with that. Um, but if we make it to where, you know, essentially like i said merge it with a little bit of hotel california so it's the grand hotel budapest california uh i think that's kind of where my head was at with this one <laughs> i love that that's <laughs> a great time uh, in all seriousness i would like to see wes anderson before he's done directing deal with something supernatural i think that that's a uh, a road that he has not gone down yet that i think he would be uh it'd be interesting to see him in that kind of sandbox mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think that would be fun. Um, so I guess normally we would have three segments left. We have two traditional ones and one that, Travis, I don't know if you're ready to reveal or not, but I might have tipped your hand there. Um, I will say this. We do not have a tag and title tonight because this movie did not have a tagline. Um, the tagline really? was directed by Wes Anderson, which I feel like that's probably most of his stupid fucking movies because that's all you have to do to get people to see it. Like... That is true. I mean, I, I I wonder if Life Aquatic had a tagline because if it wasn't what would be the scientific purpose of killing it, revenge, then that's a real shame. Uh, let's see. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Those were these movies were ten years apart. The Life Aquatic was two thousand four. The Grand Budapest was twenty fourteen. Oh, interesting. Well, I was I was wondering, you know, what came out. You know, around that time, a decade earlier. Well, another Wes Anderson jam. <laughs> um, I don't think. I think the tagline is with Steve Zissou. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's Bill Murray and a new comedy by Wes Anderson, "The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou." That is that is the tagline. I guess he just doesn't like taglines with his movies. Well, I mean, fair enough. He's he's got the cachet to not have them, so mm-hmm. that's fine. Like I said, he is the tagline. Uh, so with that said, we have what was Market Watch. We've relabeled that blue book, which makes a little bit more sense. So I can go into that, which is essentially, you know, uh, how much the movie cost and then what it grossed in the U.S. and worldwide, just to give kind of an idea of, you know, was this a successful movie or not? And then, Travis, were you ready for your next segment, or do we want to wait a week? Uh, no. I mean, I don't have a good name for it, so we might want to hold off a week. Okay, we'll, we'll hold off. We'll tease that for next week. Um, so we'll just do Blue Book and, and and close it out. So Blue Book, Travis, what do you think the budget for the Grand Budapest Hotel was? Uh, I'm going to say $59 million. Hold on to that number. The budget okay. was $25 million. Ooh, okay. What do you think it grossed in U.S. and Canada? U.S. and Canada. 
it, was it only released in U.S. and Canada? No, I'll, I'll give you worldwide next. Yeah, I'll give you worldwide next. Just what do you think U.S. and Canada audiences, well, how much money do they give this movie? I'll say $101 million. The answer is $59 million. I did tell you to hold Ooh. on to that number. I was foreshadowing the fact that it would be yeah. needed. Oh, well, it's fine, fine, though. You know, I'll do a better job next time when I'm... <laughs> I'm, I'm putting that into the script. Um, do you want to guess worldwide? What do you think it made? So this whole 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 world, U.S., Canada, whole world. and the the rest of the lot. Where are we at? I'm gonna uh, 172.9 million. You're a son of a bitch. <laughs> You're a real son of a bitch. <laughs> it, it was an accident. I was trying to see the release date, and I, I happened to see the the box office gross yeah so basically 173 million dollars so it it was very successful as far as i'm i, I don't know like, would you call that i don't know what hollywood considers successful like it it definitely it made a lot of its money back so um yeah and i mean like you said earlier uh with this being oscar bait the the primary function of these kind of movies aren't necessarily to be box office hits they kind of want awards prestige mm -hmm. but yeah i think by any measure this movie was successful Yep. So they. Uh, <laughs> what? Yep. Uh, well, I mean, with that said, I guess we could probably close it out here. Oh, I mean, I think it's pretty. I guess. Well, yeah. You just want to do what? Where we recommend it in general? Oh, I recommend owning it, it. Like, I'm not even gonna try and. I I do own this movie. I have it on Blu-ray. Oh, do you? Yeah, okay. I I do. Yeah, I I I watch this probably a couple of years ago and, and fell in love with it. So this is, this is a movie I have no problem going back and revisiting. So I was excited when you were cool, when you hadn't watched it. Cause I wanted to share this one with you. I, I just, like I said, I am, I'm a big fan of Wes Anderson, not always in love with what he does, but this is definitely one of my, if not my favorite Wes Anderson film. Like I just, from beginning to end, I was completely enthralled with it. I love the story. I love the imagery. I love the acting. Um, I just, I do, you know, tight little little ribbon on top, Mendel Mendel box here. Like this is, I I just I do I love this movie. Yeah, um, I don't own it physically, but if if I were to find a pretty good price and maybe there were some special features, it's absolutely worth an own. I think in a especially as we move forward in time, it feels like there is less and less distinction and less and less quality control on things that are coming out with everything coming directly to streaming, you know, directly to Netflix, Netflix originals. It feels like the bar of quality has really gone down in probably the past 20 years. So anytime you get those name above the title directors like Wes Anderson and you can see, hey, this person has a style that is unique to him, it's always going to bump it up. So yeah, I'd say this is a, a must own if you're a, a fan of cinema. And I will just uh, in part because I I know you're you hate the two hour movie mark um, that everything is at. I will tell you the runtime for this movie was an hour and forty nine min or thirty nine minutes. So it was right at that that hour and forty that you like. Yes, yes. No need to overstuff things. So I, I appreciated the economy there. Um, and, and I think the reason I love this movie is it to me, I, I think you can agree, Brett, we're both cynical, jaded bastards. Oh, yes, um, absolutely. And we only become more so with time. So when a movie can be heartfelt and I don't roll my eyes, 
I, I really take notice of that. And this movie was heartfelt, had a great message without beating you over the head with it and making you feel like you were watching the Hallmark Channel. So uh, anybody who knows me, I love a great depressing movie. So when I find one that's actually just, you know, warms my heart, uh, it's, it's quite an accomplishment. That movie, this movie does that. Alrighty, so let's get ready. Next week we will be reviewing James Gunn's Suicide Squad. Not to be confused with The Suicide Squad, which we'll probably never review because it was dog shit. Um, but let's go ahead and uh, get our, our number generator, our, our prompt generator here. Now, we're going to call that a blockbuster, correct? Yes. All right. So let's see what we're going to have to sit here and turn this, excuse me, son of a bitch, uh, this son of a bitch into. You want to go first or you want to go first? Uh, go ahead. Damn it. No, I'm not doing it. I'm not turning that one into a horror movie also. All right. I'm not doing two horror movies back to back. Okay, I have to turn yeah, it into yeah. a mini series. Okay. And you have to turn it in. Nope. What, did it get horror again? For family friendly. You have to turn it into a comedy. Oh. So you have to go full comedy because you already know it's a it's that's gonna it's be comedic. that's gonna be a, a challenging one because you already know James Gunn is gonna make it funny. Like dark comedy. So you're gonna have to find a way to really push the comedy side of it. Yeah, I feel like I've gotten two impossible tasks in a row here, and, and this is a game created by you. I'm not I'm not claiming conspiracy that you're trying to steal the the, the glory on this podcast, but it could be. <laughs> uh, but yeah, okay. So Suicide Squad next week, I'll be making it into a full on comedy chop shop. Brett will be making it into a HBO esque mini series. Uh, so add some more content to it. Brett, did you have any closing thoughts about Grand Budapest Hotel or anything else before we tell our listeners goodbye? Uh, no, my only thing is if you haven't seen it, you definitely should. And hopefully, if you have you have seen it because i'm hoping we didn't just spoil the shit out of the movie for you but um if we did i don't think it matters because it's not super nothing super spoiler where like you'd be crushed aside from possibly the the reveal that agatha's head does not get pulled out of the box but what's in the box uh <laughs> just go go see it it's a it is a fantastic movie it is it's very very good it's quirky. Absolutely. That's I, good. I feel good about the recording, Brett. Uh, I actually, just as a token of gratitude, I, I sent over five dozen individually tissue-wrapped white oh. tulips in a box the size of a child's coffin. Stop flirting with her. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. What'd you think? Was that good? You're well, going to run it yeah, again? No, that, that, no, that was perfect. I, I like the juxtaposition of trying to read Wes Anderson dialogue, but <laughs> us just being us. So I, I think that works. <laughs> right.